It's good to have you with us this morning at the Blue Valley Antioch campus. Uh, Hope that uh, your morning has gone well. Uh, Today is Mother's Day. Um, If that is news to you, offices will be open for marital counseling tomorrow at 8.30. Uh, To be honest, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with Mother's Day and Father's Day. Those that have worked with me over the years know this. I love the celebration part. I mean, I I love making much of my wife, and frankly, I love it when much is made of me on my day next month. I love the celebration part of it. But I hate, as a preacher, feeling like I'm being pushed into preaching a mother-specific or father-specific sermon on days that are essentially, let's face it, cultivated by greeting card companies to move product. And so, if you've ever wondered why doesn't he ever really preach Mother's Day or Father's Day messages, now you know the answer. I hardly ever do it. But I have other concerns that fall under a pastoral umbrella, first of all. I know, I know how hard it is to come to church on a day like Mother's Day when you are experiencing infertility and loss. Our family went through that for several years with my son and his wife. I know how hard it is on you. I know how hard it is on singles to have a day where much is made of the family and you're sometimes made to feel like a second-class citizen. And I know how hard it is on widows and widowers for whom today uh, sometimes is at best bittersweet. But my biggest issue uh, with it all, making this day about that, is theological. As thankful, as thankful as we should be for our earthly families, we should never forget that they are not ultimate. Our family ties, as we experience them here, do not carry over into eternity, at least in any way that resembles those relational ties now. And Jesus said so on two different occasions. The first was in response to a question designed by his adversaries to draw him into a a theological controversy between two warring parties on the nature of the afterlife. And in answering their question and in deflecting the controversy, Jesus said that there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage in the afterlife, Luke 22, 30. So what does he mean? He says there's not the institution of marriage nor are people getting married in the afterlife. So that relationship of husband and wife doesn't transcend the grave. And Paul explains why in Ephesians 5.32 when he says marriage's ultimate purpose is to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. And when we are in eternity experiencing the fullness of that, the need for the institution that reflects the picture is made obsolete. That doesn't mean that we won't love and appreciate and recognize one another in eternity. It just means that we will relate to one another differently. So that begs the question, how will we relate to one another? And Jesus tells us on the second occasion where he spoke concerning the nature of family ties in the kingdom of God. It was in response to being told that his mother and his brothers were trying to make their way through the crowds to see him. And in response, Jesus says in Luke 8, 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. 
Now, there is a lot that we could unpack with that statement, but Jesus is essentially saying that the ultimate family tie that any of us as his followers have is in how we relate to one another through that family tie in Jesus. What becomes ultimate is not that we were so-and-so's earthly husband or wife or so-and-so's earthly uh, uh, mother or father or now in my life so-and-so's earthly grandfather or grandmother. That is why when I baptized my son Caleb, I didn't pronounce him my son in Christ, but my brother in Christ. That is why when I baptized my daughter Abigail, I did not pronounce her my daughter in Christ. I pronounced her my sister in Christ. We relate to one another in a new family because of Jesus Christ. It is really the trajectory of the whole Bible and easy to see once your eyes are open to it. So we need to communicate and we need to understand with one another that the primary tie that we have with one another as followers of Jesus is that. That is ultimate about us. And the roles that we fulfill in life now will not transcend the grave but be replaced with the fullness of what all of the rest of it pointed to. So why do I bring all of this up today? It's to shed light on one of the most in-the-sand line statements that are in Scripture. In James 1.27... Christ's earthly brother, James, says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphan and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This in-your-face declaration, and either you have it or you don't kind of statement, comes at the end of a riff that James was doing on the difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. The difference, he says, between hearing the Word of God and actually doing the Word of God. Now, it's important to understand he's not pitting those two things against one another, saying one is more important than the other. In other words, he's not saying it is more important to live a moral life than it is to know doctrine. What he is simply saying is that if what you know doesn't impact how you live, you don't really know it. Right conduct inevitably flows from right belief or right doctrine. And in this riff, James is is saying that how much you really know God is measured in two ways, which are actually just two sides, we'll see in a minute, of the same ethical coin. Both flow from our relationship with Jesus and how it reshapes our understanding of who our family really is. So what does he do? Positively, he says that true commitment manifests itself in those who visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, there are a few things that I want to highlight about that statement. First, the word visit means to look after. So it doesn't mean that you're just kind of dropping in from time to time on these people. And that word affliction, you might be surprised to know, is the very same word that is translated as tribulation in the end times passages in Scripture. So it's talking about something very intensely wrong about their situation. So let's read that as saying that genuine commitment to Jesus will manifest itself in looking after orphans and widows in their distress, in their time of trouble, in their tribulation. So now we need to ask, 
why the orphans and widows of James's day were experiencing such tribulation. And it all has to do with their social status in the first century, which directly impacted their economic and legal status in the first century, which was directly impacted by the absence of a father and a husband. Now, in a modern sense, we, we think of an orphan as someone who has lost both mother and father. But in antiquity, children who had lost either mother or father were considered orphans. So here's what we need to see. James isn't speaking of two different kinds of people who need looking after. He isn't speaking of an orphan and widow as two different kinds of people experiencing two different kinds of tribulation. He's speaking of a wife and children without a father. He is speaking of one thing. He is speaking of a fatherless family. So we could read it then very naturally by intent this way. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to look after fatherless families in their affliction. Now, this was a real, real problem in ancient times because of the higher mortality rate among males as it related to the family unit, due in part to the fact that that men tended to marry later than did women, and also because younger men were conscripted and were frequently the casualties of war. There were many, many family units in this kind of situation. In the absence of a father, the wife and the child were left behind, and in the absence of any kind of legal or social status, they were open to be taken advantage of by the powerful of the day, and they frequently were. This was the way of the world. That was just very natural. Naturally, a thing you would do. That was good business in the ethic of James' day, which feeds what James says next. He says that true religion was to positively look after fatherless families in tribulation and negatively to keep oneself unstained by the world. And it's important to see that that statement is directly related to what he has just said about the orphan and widow, the fatherless families. He, he's, he's acknowledging that it is very human to cater to the powerful and forget the powerless. In fact, he'll chastise the church in just a minute for doing just that. But over and over again in the Old Testament, God says it is just his nature to do the exact opposite of what comes natural to us. Here's what the psalmist says of God in Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. This is His way. This is who He is to value those that the world would otherwise overlook or take advantage of. The way of the world is to forget about the needs of disenfranchised folks at best or to take advantage of them at worst and to even demonize them. So the command here is simply this. True religion isn't worldly in its valuation of the familyless and the voiceless. True religion reflects the nature of the one worshipped who is the father of the fatherless and the protector of the voiceless. So for the follower of Jesus, there is a sense in which your father is their father and you are looking at a member of your family if they too are followers 
of Jesus. So the purpose of preaching from this text on this day, dedicated to celebrating our earthly families, is to remind you that your bigger and eternal and ultimate family are those to whom you are related in Jesus Christ. Now, it's super easy to beat up on our tribe of Christians. And frankly, we deserve a lot of what is said. I mean, I'm sickened every time I hear someone who claims to follow Jesus stereotype poor people as lazy. I I get nauseous every time I hear someone claim to be pro-life but fight tooth and nail against initiatives to expand medical care for impoverished children. I'm sickened and ashamed every time someone quotes like it's Scripture, God helps those who helps themselves. Ben Franklin said that. Jesus didn't. (laughs) But historically, Christians have understood James 1.27, and that's something you can overlook on Twitter and on Facebook and in the deconstructing networks that exist for us. In fact, Christians of our day still understand James 1.27. Christians are behind some of the greatest adoption services in America. The church that David Platt led in Birmingham, Alabama for many years got so behind foster care in their community that there was a waiting list of willing foster parents instead of a waiting list of kids who needed fostering. There are faith-based groups in every city in America working with abused and neglected women and homeless men. Historically, Christians have taken James 1.27 to heart and have led the way in caring for the vulnerable because they know God's heart for the vulnerable, and they still do. But we could do better. We could do better. So today, by way of summary... Briefly, I just want you to remember two things. First, true followers of Jesus champion the forgotten. Champion the forgotten. Take as it a personal responsibility to minister to the forgotten. To miss that point, you would have to erase James 1.27 from your scripture and frankly cut out a chunk of the ethical instruction that exists in both the Old and the New Testament. The next thing to remember from this passage is this. True followers of Jesus reject favoritism. And this is what James means when he says to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And and you know that that's what he means when he immediately pivots in James chapter 2 to highlight how these churches to whom he was writing had begun to import favoritism based on social and demographic things into the church. The church had started adopting the ways of the world and honoring the wealthy and the powerful and mistreating and forgetting about and taking advantage of the poor and the weak. And picking back up on the theme of James 1.27, James says in chapter 2, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Now, that does not mean that God is only at work among the poor or that it is a sin to be rich. It simply means that he's at work among 
people in ways that the church only celebrating the wealthy and the powerful had missed. And by extension, by extension, it means that God is at work in ways that would surprise us among people that you and I would routinely overlook. And, and overlooking them is especially terrible because of our common Father, which makes us family with those who follow Jesus, be they rich or poor, be they born or unborn, be they black or white. I've said it before. I'm going to say it to you again. If you take the Bible at face value, you have more in common as a follower of Jesus with a Chinese Christian you've never met than you do have in common with a family member who doesn't follow Jesus. So those are the two measures of our devotion to God, championing the forgotten, rejecting favoritism. And now you are about to experience the dangerous thing that happens when the pastor has his devotion after he has reviewed his sermon notes. So we're going off script here, and we'll see how it goes. This morning, I'd gone over my notes, and I had uh, sat down on the back porch with a sausage biscuit from McDonald's because my wife is out of town, we are moving, and I don't know where anything is. <laughs> so I sat down on my back porch, and I began to uh, do what I normally do, which is go over my memory verses that I'm working on and uh, then uh, review, uh, re prayerfully pray through a psalm. This morning it was Psalm 100. And then I came to John 9, not because I was planning on coming to John. I came to John 9 this morning because it comes after 8 and before 10. That's why I was in it. And I began to prayerfully go through it. And if you're familiar with John, you know the whole chapter which is not like John. The whole chapter is given to the events surrounding the healing of a blind man since birth in a really weird way. You remember Jesus picks up some dirt and spits in it and makes mud and puts it on. I mean, it's really, can I just, can you just say something to me? Please don't spit on my eye. You know, that's how most of us would go. But that's the section. So he gets healed, blind since birth. The famous statement where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, which is tied to that, bringing light to the blind. And then, and then, the word begins to get out. And, and so I saw, I saw this in, in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And then look at verse 9. Some said, it is he. Others said, No. But he is like them. He kept saying, I'm, I'm him. I'm that guy. And so I wondered, why are they having this debate? And then the Lord convicted me. It's because we don't see people in need. Been there all the time. Been there every day. Nobody had really looked at him and couldn't identify him. Maybe that's him. Maybe it's somebody that looks like him. And then the Lord reminded me of the day before, yet just last evening. I was taking my lawnmower to cut grass at our new house because even though it's not officially mine, I still believe I can take better care of my lawn than anybody else can. So I was going over there to cut the grass. Now, I was, I was at State Line and 135th, and there's always someone there at the intersection. There was someone there last night. I remember looking over and seeing someone. 
God said, uh, what did they look like? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say anything except that they were, it was a man, not a woman. That's all I could do. I didn't see them. They weren't worth my gaze. Now, I can make all kinds of excuses. I can say, well, you know, these people may be up to a racket. I, I, you know, you can't do X, Y, or Z for them. It, by way, as I continued to reading, I, I, I saw that the Pharisees began to have a theological debate about this guy. Why was he here in the first place? Nobody cared that he could see, which is exactly how I rationalized getting out of ever really doing anything practically to help somebody. And that didn't make me feel great. And I continued reading, and then I got to this section in verse 35. So all of the rigmaroles going on, and, you know, is it the guy, is it not? And he's getting brought in, and it's a really combative little thing between Jesus and the Pharisees by extension through this man. And in verse 35, Jesus heard that they, the Pharisees, had cast him out, thrown him out of the synagogue. He's been excommunicated is what that means because he had had a relationship with Jesus. He had been kicked out. After they had cast him out, and having found him, Jesus found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, which is meant to be ironic. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And then in verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And I, I had a hunch about something because I've been reading through John. I had a hunch about something. And because I'm a preacher nerd, I have very sophisticated Bible software on my phone. And I pulled up my phone and I did a search and it turned out my hunch was correct. The first person to offer worship to Jesus in John's gospel was someone no one else saw. It wasn't the, the high and mighty, when the movers and the shakers, wasn't even the theological elite. It was someone that people were like, is that him? I don't know. First one to offer worship to Jesus. So, so what is it that I hope comes out of this today? Simply that we will see people that the world is overlooking and go that way in the hopes that maybe we can show them Jesus or that we can meet a new member of the family. So what might that look like? Well, let me first talk to the teenagers. I would just ask you, who are the forgotten in your school? Who gets the attention and who gets ignored? Who gets celebrated? Who gets picked on? I mean, I know it still goes on. It happened when I was in school, back when dirt was warm, you know, a long time ago. And I know it happens right now. Before the pandemic, I was a volunteer at Tiger Paws at, at Blue Valley High School. And uh, I saw all the same things go on in your hallway that went on in my hallway. And I know that school is almost over for the year and that there's not a lot of time left. But let me encourage you to eat one day each of the next two weeks with a person or with a group of persons who are outside the margins of your school's social order. And then let me encourage you in the new school year to, in a class where you're allowed to choose your own seat, sit beside 
for the year a forgotten person. And remember, the purpose is not just to be nice. The purpose is to show them tangibly the love of Jesus and the hopes that maybe you get to share your faith with them or to meet a new family member in Christ that you would have otherwise never met. My prayer for Blue Valley Antioch students and Blue Valley Ridgeview students and Blue Valley Mission Esperanza students is that you will upset the social order of your school. Now let me talk to young families in this room. The need for foster parents and adoptive parents in our area is huge. We've had a couple of folks who grew up in our student ministry here at Blue Valley who actually fostered kids and adopted kids before they had their own biological children. Now, it's a big commitment, and it's not something that God is going to call everyone to, but shouldn't you, as a young family, resourced, you live in Johnson County, I mean, you're more resourced than most people in the world, shouldn't you, as a young family who is resourced, at least pray as a family about the opportunity of becoming a foster and or an adoptive parent. We've got folks who have walked that pathway. Jen Keepus, who is our part-time director of early childhood ministries at Ridgeview, has fostered and adopted. And in case you've forgotten, I grew up in an adoptive family. My parents took a look at me, what they got the natural route, and went, <laughs> and, and so they adopted my sister. Let's not have any chance that a girl looks like that. <laughs> but those of us who have been in those kinds of families will tell you how naturally and ridiculously normal it is. And some of you could be that for uh, a, a parentless child. And I'd be happy to share with my experience, others would. Now let me talk to the people in this room who are in my neck of the woods. I mean, the house is empty. Not retired yet, but you can see it on the horizon. For most of us, it's not practical to foster or adopt. I mean, Julie and I have actually kicked it around a time or two with some kids who had come through uh, Julie's school, one of those actually a pretty significant conversation about, and we just had to reach the point where we recognized that the pace of her life and my life with the responsibilities we have just weren't suitable for long-term placement at this point. But there is something called respite care where couples who can do so provide a day off, an afternoon off, a weekend off for foster parents. Again, that's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but based on what we've learned from God's Word today, shouldn't families like mine at least consider something like that? And if you're an educator, and I know we have a few in this room, consider doing what my wife did and take a job downtown. I mean, the Kansas City Public Schools and the Kansas City, Kansas Public Schools are always, always looking for teachers because the kids in those areas are hardened and their home lives are, are ridiculously chaotic. It is not for the faint of heart. But some of you are equipped to do it and could do it and be an educator in these forgotten places that shows the love of Jesus. Finally... Let me talk to senior adults in this room, and I know there were more of those in the, in the previous service than there are in here, but let me talk to you. Many of you are peers to widows and widowers. Ask yourself, what can I do to look after them? 
We've got a team of folks that you can partner with. Our Women on Mission, led by Dolores Hanneman, uh, reaches out to shut-ins and people who are widows and widowers on a regular basis. You can partner with that group. Our deacons minister to widows and widowers periodically throughout the year. But maybe without having any kind of official title or being a part of an official ministry, you could just take it upon yourselves to invite them over for holiday dinners. I get that most of their family will include them, but because of the extended family that we have now, some of them experience their birthdays alone. And maybe maybe you could just invite them over for a birthday dinner or take them out to eat. So there you go. Across all demographics, some suggestions. They are not commands. The Lord's going to take what I've said and use it in a specific way in your life. But that specific way will bring you to a point where you have to decide, am I all talk or do I really know and love the Lord Jesus and am I offering, offering myself in ways that demonstrate that I have not forgotten about members of my family. My prayer is that we will jump in with joy to serve him among the forgotten in ways that honor him most, whatever that is specifically for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.